Hi, welcome to The Consensus by the Georgetown Bipartisan Coalition. This is Sanjay, your host, and I'm really excited for today's episode. Today, we're going to dive into healthcare. I wanted to talk about this because, you know, I don't know if you guys have been watching the latest, uh, the, you know, the nomination hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, but it's surprisingly, a lot of it's focused on healthcare, you know, with the recent case, with the upcoming case on Obamacare it's become uh, an issue to talk about. And especially it's on the mind of many voters when uh, looking at the November elections. So I wanted to dive into it a little bit. And I also wanted to get the perspective um, of students on campus um, from both the Republican side and the Democratic side. Um, And to help me with that, I have two guests that I'm really excited to bring on the podcast today. First up is uh, is Christian Simon. Christian, do you want to just kind of, you know, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself? Kind of give yeah, us- of course. Uh, right now, I'm a junior. I'm a uh, HCMP major, which is healthcare management and policy. I'm also on the pre med track uh, in terms of healthcare within my own life. Uh, I come from a family of doctors, and uh, yeah, growing up around it my whole twenty years. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and also we have uh, Natalie. Shot her? Is that, am I saying that right? Sorry. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Natalie. I'm also a junior. Um, I'm in the School of Foreign Service. I'm studying regional comparative studies with a concentration in Africa and Latin America. Um, but my healthcare background is um, like Christian, I have a family of doctors. And so I have a little, a lot of interactions through that. Um, and I'm also currently in a class discussing the HIV slash AIDS epidemic. Right, that's great. Um, and also just to clarify, Natalie is bringing in the perspective of being a member of GUCD coming from the sort of more left-wing side of things. Um, and Christian's going to give us the more GUCR right-wing perspective. Um, so Natalie, I'm actually going to start with you. Um, you know, a, a policy or a, maybe a set of policies that have been you know, really influential or have really kind of come onto the scene lately um, has been Medicare for all. Um, and I sort of wanted to ask you, you know, could you, you know, I don't know what your um, direct perspective on it. Like, do you want to give us maybe like a little bit of a pitch um, if you kind of could argue that stance, um, if you believe in that stance, or do you want to just maybe talk about it a little bit? Um, because, and, and at, when I say Medicare for all, I do mean sort of the, the, sort of the Sanders version, the, the more, you know, not the, not the sort of more, sort of more moderate take. Um, like, yeah. But do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. Um, my own stances on Medicare for all are constantly changing all the time, but from my understanding of it, um, the idea of having a Medicare for all policy is really shifting the United States towards a socialized form of healthcare, very similar to those that we see in Scandinavian countries, um, that really provides healthcare provided by the government publicly, not through market interests or the private system, um, and really ensuring that every American has access to healthcare when there is a crisis or both, or they all always have insurance, um, and that they can get the healthcare when needed, and that they're income or the costs of healthcare aren't barriers to that. Right, right. And, you know, so, you know, Christian, I want to ask you then, you know, would you, what are your sort of first takes, you know, just from the Republican perspective of, you know, what are the most immediate things you would say, you know, 
you know, uh, Medicare for all is lacking or needs to work on or, or anything like that. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the first thing with Medicare for all is, I mean, it sounds like a great idea, right? Everybody has access to healthcare. Um, but the thing is first, how are you going to pay for that? Cause, um, there are estimates that it goes from 30 trillion to an additional $40 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, and our federal budget's already at like $4.4 trillion. So if you divide the projected increase per year, it's like almost an additional 3.3 trillion per year. So I mean, that's 70% of the current federal budget. Um, so that's a lot of costs. How are you going to pay for that? Uh, I mean, taxes are already um, increasing with Obamacare premiums already on the rise. So Medicare for all is, is just going to increase those, those uh, taxes. I mean, the way you're going to have to pay for that is by at some point, um, you're going to have to increase the taxes on the wealthier individuals. And, and fundamentally, I just disagree with that. Um, and then there are problems with Medicare by itself, um, like giving the government a larger Medicare program, in my opinion, isn't the solution. Um, I mean, Medicare as it is, you already have to pay for Part B, right? Because Part A is free, but Part B covers the things that you really need because it's uh, Part A only covers in-hospital care. Um, so, I mean, besides the cost, there's also the problem that uh, you're done treating healthcare as a right if it's Medicare for all, right? Because you're, you're saying everybody has a right to healthcare. And the problem I have with that is that doctors are performing a service voluntarily. And the moment that you tell them they are forced to perform a service to people um, for a certain amount of money, right? Because Medicare already compensates doctors and hospitals at half the rate of regular private insurance. So you're telling them they have to provide services for half the rate. Um, and for me, you know, this is, it, it's not really conducive to the American way of, of freedom of uh, practice and all those different aspects that come into being a doctor. Um, so, I mean, I think there are a couple of different problems I have with Medicare for all, but I mean, of course on paper, it sounds great. Right. Right. I mean, that's so, I mean, Natalie, you know, he, I think Christian brings up a lot of good points and, and a lot of, you know, things that many people have, uh, many people take issue with Medicare for all. I mean, you know, how would you answer the question of how are we going to pay for it? You know, are we going to, you know, start really setting doc setting doctors wages lower than they are now? You know, maybe can, can you kind of uh, talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, <laughs> I think Christian brings up some good points. Um, but I think in terms of cost, I, I actually think where Christian and I probably disagree most is that I, I do think that healthcare is a right. I think that the costs are worth it. Specifically, I think that if our country is a country that spends as much as we do on something like defense spending, then the least we can do is spend just as much on healthcare. Um, and I know that the United States already spends a lot on healthcare, but we aren't seeing the outcomes to that that we should because there is so much health inequity um, and our health outcomes just aren't the same as other countries. So I think, yes, I think spending, putting taxes on wealthier individuals to make sure that everybody in the country has access to it. I think that that is a compromise that is fair, um, especially like, and I know that Bernie Sanders talks about it a lot, but the fact that we have these billionaires in our country that make so much money um, and the fact that there are now all these loopholes in terms of taxes and they aren't parent, paying their fair share. Like, I think the fact that our president only spent like $750 on taxes in a year is really hard to swallow. And so 
I think taxes on wealthier individuals is a fair compromise. And I also wanted to mention that like the idea of doctors being penalized under Medicare for all, I think a good analogy to look to look at is education. Teachers are providing a service um, and they are getting paid for it. And I think that's a compromise. And I think at least for my for my parents and like for a lot of doctors, I think that they would want to give healthcare to more people and make sure people can access it. Mind right. if I jump in? Of course, yeah, yeah of um, course. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, the the problem with um, like decreasing the amount that you would pay doctors is they've tried that in countries like Canada, um, which has a universal healthcare system, and they f- they found that um, you know Canada has less than half of its population as specialists, right? And the U.S. is over 70% of its, I'm talking about the doctor population, 70% of the doctor population in the U.S. is specialists. And when you have that kind of large discrepancy between primary physicians and and specialists, like surgeons and those kinds of things, um, you're not able to perform the same quality of services that you would normally be able to perform. So for example, in Canada, um, you have 50,000 people in 2014 coming to the U.S. to get medical treatment that they would normally have gotten for arguably for free in Canada. Um, so there's a problem with that. If you decrease the incentives for doctors, obviously you're going to have less doctors. There's already a doctor problem in the U.S. We don't have enough doctors. Um, so I think that would just create a larger problem in terms of performing the service. Um, and, and also, um, there hasn't been any proven. So I saw this study where they, they looked at all the different countries that have um, created an increase of government presence in the healthcare system. And they found that uh, those systems don't actually benefit from a longer life expectancy on average or have a greater quality and life expectancy within the country. And I mean, that just kind of shows that just because the government is taking control of a program doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be a better program. Um, and, and also the fundamental problem with the government taking over more control with your life and controlling those very personal decisions that you have um, within your own health, uh, I, I just, don't think the government should have that much power. I'm, I'm not one for increasing government power. Um, so I, I disagree from that aspect as well. And, and uh, Natalie, before you respond, I do want to add one, one last thing, just so you can maybe take on all that at once, um, which is, you know, you mentioned increased taxes for the wealthy. You know, I do remember during the primaries, you know, uh, Bernie was asked if he would increase taxes for everyone, right? I mean, would taxes just for the wealthy actually be able to pay for the system, it seems not. Um, and do you think it would be smart to actually end up taxing many more people, you know, the middle class, lower middle class, um, even more than now to pay for the system? Would that be worth it as well? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge about taxes in particular, but personally, I think that raising taxes, even if it is for everyone, is worth it because I think that if COVID-19 has taught us anything is that we need to have better healthcare than what we have. And because um, a public option would help everyone who like currently doesn't have it, I think it would be worth it. Um, And I wish I could provide more specific like tax ideas and plans that would make that more effective. But um, that's my personal take on it. Um, In terms of things that Christian was saying, um, I think that when it comes to incentives for specialization, I wasn't familiar with the Canada example. I think it's worth mentioning that in the United States, if there is fewer doctors or if that is a problem, I think looking at 
our medical education is a, a better way to look at that and making sure that it's more accessible to more people because I know that there are so many students that want to become doctors, but the idea of having to pay so much money for med school, um, having to go through residency, which isn't a very high paying job um, before becoming finally a doctor is really intensive. So I don't think that we have to sacrifice sacrifice incentives for specialization um, and having fewer doctors under the system. Um, but I also think that if there are drawbacks, I think at the end of the day, having a public system just makes healthcare more accessible to more people. Because if somebody has the option of having a healthcare system that isn't as specialized or isn't as good versus having no healthcare at all, I just think that trade-off is worth it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that it should be socialized and there should be a public option because I don't think that in a commodity like healthcare where demand is so inelastic, market outcomes just don't work. You see a lot of inefficiencies in the system because of how much power pharmaceutical companies have um, over like life-saving drugs. And so I think I would be more for a government option as opposed to keeping the market as it is. I don't entirely disagree with that, actually. I don't think that a public option would be the worst thing. Um, I just want to make sure that there's a public option and you also have the private option. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think if a public option basically just acts the same as a private option, it's just offered by the government for, you know, possibly lower rates, um, like essentially you're buying into Medicare. Um, if people can, can pay that and they're willing to do that and it funds itself, then I have no problem with that. Um, the, the, the thing with medical education, like, yeah, I know vet school is, you know, it costs an arm and a leg. Um, I'm sure there are things in place for people who can't afford it if they're willing to do it. Um, I, I think probably the um, obstacle for people who want to become doctors, I mean, the money is probably one thing, but I'm sure the other thing is having to go through like 20 years of schooling, um, depending on what you want to do. So um, I definitely feel that. And, and, but you've also seen a large shift in this country for new doctors going into fields that are less regulated. Um, so you don't want to regulate being a doctor and not creating those incentives because, for example, in um, uh, laser eye surgery, you, you have this very unregulated market that's become uh, a market that's driven by competitiveness. So originally, I guess, like, like 10 years ago or so, or when it first came out, uh, laser eye surgery cost, I think, was like something like $20,000. Um, and, and now, because of all the different physicians who have gone into that field because of its um, lack of regulation they've driven down the price to like two thousand or three four something like that it's under it's under ten thousand um, dollars for i so uh, creating incentives like definitely moves the market i wouldn't downplay the importance of that um and i mean in general like i know this the healthcare system right now isn't great um but when you do compare it to those other countries and you do look at the health outcomes of people in the u.s uh, specifically for things like cancer, the U.S. has been doing really well. Like they have the highest five-year survival rate for, for cancers in general. Um, and, and also the incentives for privatization of healthcare and for like a profit-driven insurance companies has created the U.S. to be like by an extremely large margin, the number one producer of medical patents in the world. So if you drive down those incentives, you're having less new drugs being brought to the market, which hurts everybody. Um, so, I mean, there, are, there definitely are drawbacks, but there are a lot of good things too about it. Um, I, I agree with you that we should probably focus on um, like community health uh, and focus on the externalities for health and making sure that if people have access to things like food and, and healthy foods that you're probably gonna decrease costs in the long run because they're not having 
heart disease and all that, which is the number one mortality um, cause in the U.S. So, I, I mean, I agree. We have to focus on the community more than the individual, and that's probably where we're going to help uh, decrease costs in, in the current market. Um, but there are so many factors that you have to consider. And I mean, I definitely don't know all of them. I don't plan to know all of them. And if somebody did know all the reasons, I think we would have had a solution by now. So, I mean, it's just a really tough, tough thing to see what you give and what you take. Right. Um, and Natalie, before I hand this off to you again, I do want to note, you know, I, I do sort you know, we've talked about this, this, uh, this idea of the doctor shortage, you know, and that this is a big problem in the U.S. Although at least when I was um, researching, um, going to med school, I don't know, like two years ago or something, um, before I ultimately decided that I'm too scared of blood. Um, um, I, you know, I learned a little bit about the fact that a lot of that shortage is actually caused by the lack of residency positions um, that are, that's actually basically set by the government. Um, and so, you know, med schools, so they can only accept, you know, they, they, have, they, have, they basically can only accept as many people as there are positions. Um, which is why, you know, med school is notoriously, I'm Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you'll find this out soon, um, have like, you know, like single digit acceptance rates um, because they can only take so many people. So it actually seems to be a government problem um, that, you know, could be rectified um, that's creating the doctor shortage in the U.S. But but this is just a, you guys can do whatever you want with that. That's just a little piece of information that I'm, I'm throwing out there. Um, but yeah, Natalie, do you want to maybe respond to, to some of what Yeah, um, I want to respond to that and then some of the things that Christian was saying. But I I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't realize how much was regulated by the government itself. I think you're right. I think that's a big inefficiency that should be remedied. Um, and I think, I also think when thinking about people who are, are doctor shortage, it's worth looking at who is becoming doctors because I know that there are a lot of, groups, there are a lot of minorities in America that are not represented um, in the medical profession. And there are huge outcomes to that because I think there's lots of data about how black women in particular, their their medical needs are dismissed a lot more. Um, I know that for women in general, like we have a really bad history in this country of um, like their needs not being met. There's a lot of systemic racism in the medical profession from like Henrietta Lacks to Tuskegee, that it's just a, it's a very big problem. And so I think when we look at the doctor shortage, we should also make it more accessible to underrepresented communities. Um, but in terms of things that Christian was saying, I thought uh, I definitely, I the laser eye surgery, um, the competition and like how that got better, that's, I think that's really cool. I, um, I hadn't known about that, but he also brought up patent laws which I think, or he brought up patents. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about patent laws. Um, and I, it seemed like earlier, like we, it seemed like we had kind of reached a consensus about like maybe the problems with big pharma, but you should definitely respond to that after I finish. Um, but I think when we look at certain drugs like insulin, like they're so expensive. And a lot of that is because we're in this privatized marketplace where companies can drive up the price to make sure that they're getting more profit or they're changing, they're using the patent laws to change things slightly in the drugs, even though there's not that much of a difference, only so that they can get a patent on it. And I think that that is very counter to like making sure that healthcare is accessible. Um, 
And the, sorry, the last thing I want I know I've been talking for a while, but the last thing I wanted to say is in terms of U.S. health outcomes, um, while I'm glad that we're doing better in terms of cancer, there are so many other diseases that we're doing very, very poorly on. Like the United States is one of the worst when it comes to maternal mortality rates. We're one of the worst, or we're in, in terms of comparing to other developed nations, we're very bad when it comes to respiratory diseases, which does not bode well for being in the middle of a pandemic that is a respiratory disease. So I think even though we might be better in some respects, our health outcomes are pretty bad in relation to a, a lot of other developed countries. So I, I, the first thing uh, I want to address was um, the the people who are getting into medical school. So um, I've actually looked at this because I'm going through the process soon enough. And uh, I think like definitely last last year, it was the last year that the data was made available. Um, I mean, you you specifically mentioned women. I know specifically more women were accepted into medical school than men this previous year. Um, and I know in general, there's been a large increase of doctors coming from Asian communities. Um, so I, I think it's more, the, the issue isn't necessarily like discrimination against applicants. It's, it's more who those applicants are to start. So maybe increasing the interest among those communities could be a good first step. I, I'm completely with that. Uh, and then going with patents, I, I think one thing that a lot of people don't consider um, is when you're paying the price for a drug, you're not paying the price for uh, like just that drug that was that one successful experiment that they did that it became a successful drug. You're paying for all the times that they had to fail and all the research and, and development that they spent producing this drug. And it's not beneficial to the pharmaceutical company to sell it at just the price that they would have for production because they're losing all of the money that they spent to create that product that would be production. Um, so, I mean, I, I do agree, like pharmaceutical prices should go down. You should increase the transparency of the prices, which will increase competition. Um, but also consider that Medicare, by law, cannot bargain the prices for drugs. By, by law, Medicare is not allowed to set prices for um, pharmaceutical drugs, which is why you have to buy Part D, which is from like a different specialized, uh, privatized healthcare insurance system. Um, and then also, like, there are generics. I know that the patents cover drugs for, like, two years or something. Uh, and then after those two years, if unless you, like, significantly change the component of the drug or you call it something else, I don't know. I'm sure there are loopholes around that. Um, then other companies do produce generics. So I think the important thing is to increase the um, production of generic drugs because generic drugs are just traditionally cheaper and it's relatively the same formula. Um, so, I mean, th there are some differences that can be made in terms of pricing for drugs. But I mean, in general, I would just hesitate to, to decrease the incentives too much for pharmaceutical companies to create these new products. Because I mean, I'm sure the majority of drugs being used and shipped around the world are coming from the US or, or at least US based companies that are producing these drugs. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I've, and then I'm sure you'll have another question. Um, I the law that like keeps Medicare from bargaining those prices, I actually think Joe Biden wanted to get rid of that rule. Um, and I, I think I agree with that. I think that like making sure that prices can be bargained down is good. Like I, I guess I just worry, like I, I know incentives are important and I'm sure you're right that like the US has a lot of innovation and like a lot of those drugs are going out, but I worry about how much control pharmaceutical companies do have over those prices because like, for instance, like the opioid crisis, like when you're incentive, when, 
pharmaceutical companies are essentially paying doctors and incentivizing them to give opioids, which leads to a whole other epidemic, like there's just a huge clash between commercial interests and the welfare of like people. Right. I think, but well, one actually, thing I want to say. Christian, can I add one more thing before I give yeah, it to you? Ahead. I did want to say, you know, I mean, I think that's a, there, this is a good point that, you know, um, that it makes sense to, you know, have patents. It makes sense to raise prices for the first few years to pay for the research um, that would have to go into producing X drug. Um, but should we put limits on that? You know, should we say, you know, I think, I think, you know, it, it is in the public mind that, you know, there are a lot of examples of just, you know, I don't know, price gouging, but like blatantly, you know, you know, there are drugs that are, that are, you know, so much more expensive than they need to be um, to even make a very reasonable profit. Um, should we actually put in some limits, maybe, you know, limit the time more or limit the price in, you know, to make it, you know, a little bit more of a reasonable system? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, the first thing I want to say with opioids is, uh, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think the majority of the problem isn't like bad prescribing by doctors. It's just bad uh, taking the, the actual dosage by the recipients. Um, so like, the, I mean, it is a very addicting thing and people know that you can get hooked onto it. So, I mean, it's a very touchy subject and there's a lot of problems with it. But I mean, I don't think the problem is so much the physicians prescribing it. Maybe there are alternatives that they could prescribe, um, like different painkillers besides opioids. But um, I, I think the problem is more with the use of it, not the prescription of it. Um, and then the other thing with the price limits, um, like, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I do agree that, that there should be some sort of limit. Like for example, I have allergies and I need to buy an EpiPen. Um, and I know that the company that produces EpiPen, I forget the name of it. I think it starts with like an M. Um, but they had like ridiculous prices for EpiPens because they were the only people producing it. And then you have this other thing that came to the market. It's called AviQ. I don't know who makes it. But um, when you have that increased competition, they're no longer a monopoly, so they have to be competitive with their prices. And I think that should be the focus, not putting caps on things, but creating uh, natural competition. Because when you put, put caps on, on different things, um, I mean, I just don't think that's, that supports like a very free market, a very capitalistic nature. I mean, you could disagree with whether or not you like the capitalistic nature or the free market, but I mean, as long as we have it, I think you have to be consistent with it. Um, so I, I think you should provide incentives in that case for new companies to come in and produce those competing drugs as opposed to putting caps on the ones that are producing. Right. Uh, Natalie, I actually did want to shift it, um, the debate a little bit because we are going to, we're kind of moving up, moving along in time. Right. Um, you know, I wanted to sort of talk about the two, you know, as we approach the election, healthcare is a topic we're thinking about. Um, and, you know, in terms of Biden's plan, it isn't quite Medicare for all, right? That isn't really what he's proposing. It's a public option. And I wanted to ask you, you know, something I've heard about the public option is it's a more moderate stance, certainly, but it's something that seems like it's meant to get to Medicare for all, right? Because you have the public option and it's basically subsidized by taxes. Um, and so it's actually, it actually ends up being the most cost-effective thing for anyone to choose um, because it doesn't have to compete in the same way as other healthcare plans. Um, and so enough people take it and then you end up with everyone on the public option and that's Medicare for all. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, is that, is that the plan here? What do you think the role of Medicare for all, or the public option is um, in relation to 
yeah, all that. Yeah, I think, and I think this is probably where my differences are from a lot of other people um, who identify as liberal. Like, I, I like the public option. I like Biden's plan. Um, and I think our country is going, I think that gradual um, journey to Medicare for all is smarter than maybe doing Medicare for all all at once. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of it. Um, I, yeah, I, I like it. Um, I think that, um, especially since we're in a pandemic, like having a public option, making sure that ACA isn't overturned is in the best interests of people. Um, and I think in terms of where he, how he's thinking about funding it, like he has been pretty explicit about like offering better tax credits, like making sure it's not going to raise taxes for um, middle-class people. I don't know everything about Biden's plan for um, the private option. Um, but I mean, I also, I mean, I know it would be subsidized. I would want to know like what the percentage that's subsidized. I mean, the, the major concern I would have is if you have healthcare and you don't have enough skin in the game on, on your own behalf, you're basically just using healthcare at no cost to yourself. So like, I mean, sounds great. It's free. Nobody's paying for it. Um, besides the other people that aren't you. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I think if they're paying for it themselves and it's like just marginally cheaper um, and it is being paid for uh, without increasing taxes to a certain set of people over uh, another group of people, um, I mean, I think that would be fine. If you have a flat tax rate that increases the same for everybody, I think that would be fair. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it is an increase in taxes, but as long as it's all fair, I, I don't entirely disagree with the public option. Right. But would you, Christian, I do want to ask you, you know, would you have a problem if sort of the plan is that it's a gradual move into Medicare for all, right? If the idea of the public option is a sort of, we're going to get there eventually. If, if it does get there, um, then yeah, I would have a problem with it, but I'm not going to write something off in its beginning because of some hypothetical thing in the future. If there is something in the actual law that says like after five years, we're automatically going to increase the number of people on this plan by like 15% or something, or something like that. Um, and if there is a very explicit mention of increasing it towards that Medicare for all, then yeah, I think that would be a reason to shut it down. Um, but if it is just like a separate thing, its own option, uh, you know, no promises for future expansion in the future. Um, then yeah, I mean, I, I could see the concern. I mean, it, it would kind of just be like, I know a, a common thing that Republicans are saying, like, you know, Kamala's going to be president, Joe Biden's like the leading to that. I mean, if this is kind of the same deal with that, then, then yeah, I think it would be inappropriate. Right, right. Um, okay. And, you know, okay, so Natalie, I do want to, you know, I think we've covered the Bi Biden's option at this point. Um, but this sort of shift over to Trump's plan. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is that I don't think anyone really knows what it is. Um, it's kind of not really, you know, super well articulated just from, from you know, the moderate stance. I, I don't think um, it, there is enough emphasis, there isn't as much emphasis on it as the, uh, you know, as, the, as Biden on the public option. So I did want to ask you, you know, I think one thing that he has emphasized is repealing Obamacare. And, you know, that's kind of his go-to at the moment, you know, lowering drug prices, but then also just repealing Obamacare. What would you say to that? Do you think, you know, what, what do, you, do you think that's a good idea? I'm going to assume not, but do you want to talk about why? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely have a lot of strong thoughts about it. For one, I think you're right. I think like his healthcare plan has just not been articulated well enough in terms of what the alternative is for the millions of people who are going to lose coverage. Because if ACA is overturned, he talks a lot about making sure that people with pre-existing conditions will still have coverage, but he's doing this on a basis of executive orders that I, I don't think are going to hold up or are going to eventually run out because it's just not the same as legislation. Um, and I just think the fact that all of this massive change would be happening in the middle of a pandemic is really intense and unnecessary. Um, and I think I like I think the number is like 54 million people have pre-existing conditions. And as COVID rises, anyone who has COVID has a pre-existing condition. And so I just feel like Trump, and I honestly think like the Republican Party, ever since um, ACA came out, they've been wanting to overturn it. And I just don't think that their plan, I think there was like the AHCA, like it doesn't make up for how many people are going to lose health insurance as a result. I don't entirely know everything about uh, Trump's plan also, because I don't know if there really is one that's been articulated well, um, like you both say. But there, there definitely are very big problems with Obamacare. So, I mean, for starters, it's based on the principle of the individual mandate. I mean, that's obviously been ruled on constitutional. It's not there. But the whole point of it is that you have this risk pool. And the risk pool, as long as everybody's in it and the majority of Americans are healthy, the price for premiums is relatively low. But once you have that risk pool being uh, altered because of the individual mandate is no longer there, that risk pool is now being made up of less than uh, less younger people because they're not buying into it if they think that, hey, why, why should I pay higher premiums for somebody else's really uh, you know, high cost of healthcare expenditures when I don't have many myself? So why would I buy healthcare? I'm going to get out, not buy that kind of healthcare. And then the risk pool just gets more concentrated and concentrated of those older people. The premiums just get up and up, and it's just this giant feedback loop. So I mean, with the individual mandate, I'm sure premiums would have been lower, but I mean, it is a very unconstitutional thing to say that you will be penalized for not having health care. Um, so I mean, that in and of itself is, is one reason why Obamacare was, is failing. Um, you know, uh, the higher premiums in general, the higher deductibles, uh, you, you have this one thing that I think it did kind of well was employer-based healthcare insurance. And the reason why I say that is because it increases the amount of people who would have insurance to their own risk pool within the people in their own business. Um, but the thing is, it's only mandated for companies who have 50 or more full-time employees. So that's great for companies like you know, Amazon, you can afford to pay all that stuff. But you're, you're creating disincentives for the owners and the people who are hiring to hire these people for full-time positions because if they have 50 of those people, they're then having to pay for the healthcare for all of them. So it just incentivizes hiring people part-time positions or you know, splitting up the work. Um, and because of that, you've seen a number of small firms from, you know, 2012 to 2016, 24% decrease in, in small firms offering health insurance to their employees. So, I mean, I, I think Obamacare in the beginning was a decent enough idea, but it was completely based too much on the individual mandate, which was obviously um, not constitutional. Yeah, Krishna. I think- I, oh, actually, Natalie, go ahead. Well, I think in terms of employer-based healthcare, like I, I have problems with that because as we've seen with our unemployment rates and like the recession, when people lose their job, they lose their health insurance and that's really problematic. Um, and so that makes me prefer like a public non-employer-based 
healthcare option. Um, but in terms of the individual mandate, I just think that like the individual mandate is the only, it is like the only way for this to work. You need money, you need, you need everyone to participate. And at the end of the day, like everyone should participate because even if you're young and you're healthy, like you have to take preventative measures. You don't know what you have. Um, and I just feel like there are other things that we do within society. Like we pay for, like we, we pay taxes, we pay, like we need a um, driver's license and sometimes there's costs associated with that. So like, I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't characterize it as unconstitutional. Well, I mean, I, I understand that, but I mean, the Supreme Court did, so I'm not going to disagree with them too much on that. I mean, t- technically the Supreme Court didn't, right? That was always the big controversy was that they sort of said at the end, you know, Roberts is famous for saying the mandate is a tax, right? And and so that's why Obamacare can, can exist. Um, but I, I feel like that is a sort of separate issue. Um, you know, Christian, when you, when you first explained Obamacare, you did note something that was, I think, you know, widely criticized and, and, and true of Obamacare, which is what, which is that the individual mandate wasn't actually that strong. Many young people just didn't get healthcare. And so the premiums went up because the risk pool was so much more risky. <laughs> um, it was, you know, much, uh, much sicker, much more prone to use the healthcare. Um, but, you know, what's actually happened is that Trump has removed the individual mandate. And so what that actually seems like this legitimate criticism of Obamacare and why it wasn't working um, has really just been made worse um, by that move. And so maybe you can kind of speak to why you think that was done, why that would be a good idea or, or not. Yeah. Um, sure. So, I mean, I, I guess I was a misunderstanding by me that it wasn't well, technically unconstitutional. Um, but telling younger people that, they're going to be penalized for not using a service. I, I don't know if there's anything else in this country that, that we have that's, that's like that. I can't really think of one that comes to mind. Um, and it's really a personal decision. It's whether you want health care. If you feel like it's not worth paying the premiums and the deductibles and all of that because you feel like you may not use it, like I'm, I'm sure the majority of you know, 22, 23-year-olds who are very healthy, um, probably while they're in college, I'm sure they don't go to the doctor that often. And if they do go to the doctor, it's probably for not, not for anything that's too serious. I'm sure there are, you know, obviously um, exceptions to that. But the majority of people, I'm sure, are generally healthy. And they may feel like they, it's not worth it to buy health insurance. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just have a, a problem with fining people for not buying into a service. I, I just don't think that's a very American thing to do. I, I mean, I think it's an interesting point to bring up right now because when a vaccine comes out, I imagine that a lot of young people will be mandated to get it. Um, and I know that there are concerns about like, oh, if it comes out too early and like a lot of people don't, might not trust like Trump or um, pharma or like Pfizer or whatever. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, like we do want everyone to get vaccinated. We do want, and, and that is a service that will be forced on them. Um, but so I I think that's like a fair parallel, but I also think that because it's health, like it, it's not just the one person who is affected. If somebody doesn't get healthcare, then they don't get screened for like STDs and then they pass that on to somebody else. And so I think this is a service where it would not be un-American to ask someone or, 
um, essentially mandate that someone does? I think that a lot of screenings don't, I don't know if it, screenings are uh, like offered for free some places, I'm sure that they are. I know that the flu vaccine, for example, is offered for free. Um, I'm sure that if they do have a coronavirus vaccine that, that is required to attend school or something, I'm sure that would be relatively cheap, if not free. Um, I don't think that it's gonna be mandated, like you have to get it. Um, if you're a US citizen, it, it might be something like I'm an EMT for germs, I'm required to take to get the flu vaccine, otherwise I can't ride with germs. So I think something like that, it's like, well, you don't need to get it, you're not mandated to get it, but you just can't be an EMT. Um, so like, for example, at Georgetown, I don't know if Georgetown will be able to do this, but if they do require it, um, then, I mean, it's your choice whether or not you want to go to Georgetown or not. But it's not like, it's not like a, a mandate in the sense that because you're born and you're a U.S. citizen, you have to get it. It's just like, I could see where it's like kind of like that, but it's not on paper exactly like that. I mean, I do think that, well, I, I think your point of like, okay, like you don't have to go to Georgetown if it turns out that they do mandate it. Cause I know that colleges mandate a lot of other vaccines before we went to school. But I also, I thought it was also true that like for maybe even some certain public schools or like there, there are so many vaccines that people are required to get. Um, and again, I don't know like how laws have changed. Like I know that there is a pretty strong anti-vax movement in the US and that has led to outbreaks of measles and other incredibly preventable diseases, but even if it's not legally mandated, like I, I just think that it should be. Um, but, or I don't know. I think a fair comparison also is in terms of like female, like there's a lot of not to. I know I'm, I don't want to sh shift the conversation too much, but like if we're thinking about reproductive rights, if we're thinking about abortion and like bodily autonomy, it just feels inconsistent to criticize or like organs. Like it just feels inconsistent to criticize women for not doing that or mandating that a woman does this certain thing with their body. But on the other hand, like not asking people to get vaccined or something like that, vaccinated. Right. And, and at the risk of delving too deep into both constitutional and um, reproductive rights issues, which is not really, I don't really want to do that here. Um, I'd love to do that on the podcast eventually, but like not here. Um, um, I did want to sort of for the last segment of this, you know, really quickly want to shift over to ask you guys if, you know, because I think we've all agreed at this point that, um, you know, our Medicare, our medical system, you know, needs help. It needs improvement. It's, you know, not perfect at the moment. Um, and there are a lot of ways we can do that. Are there, you know, other countries, uh, other countries who have medical systems who, that you would maybe want to emulate? Um, I've heard people talk about, um, you know, of course, single payer countries like Canada or the UK, but, but would there be other examples that you'd want to say, um, these guys are doing a really good job, you know, maybe we could do something like that. Um, just curious if you guys have any opinions on that. Christian, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, definitely not Canada. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know other <laughs> countries. I think uh, I was looking at this a little bit. I didn't spend too much time. Um, but Switzerland is a decent system. The only thing is they do have an individual mandate. Um, Luxembourg is another decent system. Uh, I know there's lots of great incentives for doctors there. I think actually Luxembourg is one of the few countries that on average pays doctors more than the U.S. Um, and, and their their system. I mean, the thing with all the European countries and all the other countries that really aren't the U.S. 
is uh, people go elsewhere for those really complex research usually ends up being less. So uh, I don't like how much you would change the U.S. system to look like a European system or Scandinavian system. I I don't know if you want to go down that route of then having the U.S. people trying to go to different countries to get their you know heart transplants or all those other complicated surgeries. So, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I do, I liked more socialized healthcare. So I do like how Scandinavian countries, like I think Norway, Finland, I think those are the two that are um, thought about a lot. I think Iceland has a pretty good one too. Um, I, it is a little more complicated because we're like transitioning. And so I don't know off the top of my head a country that has transitioned or that would have to transition in the way that we would have to. But I think even if it's not the full healthcare system, like I know countries like Liberia and other African countries, how they dealt with Ebola meant that there was a better safety net and there was better infrastructure, there was better screenings and stuff. So that something like COVID-19, if it happened again, wouldn't devastate the country quite as much. And so I think in terms of very specific healthcare things we could do, I think we could emulate some of that and make sure that if there is another epidemic in the future, it's it doesn't hurt us as much as COVID-19 has. Right. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, we're actually like basically out of time. So I did want to just thank you both. Thank you both. Um, that was a really productive conversation. I'm glad we um, hit on quite a lot of stuff, basically everything um, healthcare related that I could think of um, and that the podcast team could think of. Um, so yeah, um, really appreciate it. Thank you guys for coming on. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed yeah. it. And I think I learned something too. So always love that. Me right. too. I, it, I think it's very cool that you're a healthcare management major. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a fun time. Right. Okay. Well, thanks guys. Really appreciate it.